Peterson. She um, is a beautiful lady. Uh, Jen, in many ways, is a, is a matriarch of this community. Even the matriarch sounds like... <laughs> but Jen has been with this community for ages, one of the founding ladies from back in the day. And Jen, we just want to honor you. Um, I know she's not always up front, but I really want to honor you, Jen, publicly. You've been one of those ladies that has the authenticity of the Father over your heart, that there's very little pretense that I've seen over your life, and I think that's why so many people have been drawn to you personally and what you've built as a culture in this community. And so there's something that you hold of the Father's heart that I'd like to encourage us to share our hearts with. And I had this picture early on. Uh, this morning, uh, last week while Steph was worshiping, she couldn't hit her notes, you know, and there was a sense of vulnerability where she's like, can someone help me? And uh, someone had to sing a note and suddenly she could pitch to that note. And just the sense that some of us in our lives might feel like the notes in our, in our world are like a bit out of funk and not quite working right there. And as Jane preaches, I just sense that she'd be pitching the word of God at a note that you could recalibrate your heart to and retune your heart and your soul to. And I think this is going to be a tender moment, so open your hearts uh, to receive what God wants to say. Oh, thank you. Thank you. What an introduction. Oh, thank you, Tess. Someone with water, someone with kind words. Oh, Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that we are here today together. We could be by ourselves at home in this cold weather, but we are here today because where you say two or more are gathered, that's where your presence is. And we have come today to know more about you and to encounter more of your presence. Amen. Lynn, I just want to say welcome, and it's so nice to see you. <laughs> um, yeah, you just fill my heart with so much joy. So that's Lynn, everybody. <laughs> um, Emma, before I preach, I just need to say something to you, if you don't mind. <laughs> but I just saw a picture of you, friend, um, the whole time during worship, and I felt like it was this fizzy bottle of Coke or Fanta or Sprite or something, and um, it was just being shaken and shaken, but it was like the lid is about to pop off. You're being so shaken, but the lid is popping off because all the lids that you've put on yourself are just like flying out the windows. So I just want to... I can't preach until I give that, that word to you, so I hope it means something and you can receive that. The Lord is so kind because he's always, always wanting to speak to us. And I've been so blessed preparing for this message um, because it is such a privilege to carry the heart of the Father for not just oneself, but for one's community. And we do that for each other so often, but there's something about preparing a word or preparing worship or preparing um, ministry uh, for a group of people that you know less and less about <laughs> that just draws you into the Father's heart again. And so I've been so um, overwhelmed with the love that Jesus has for the people in this room because he loves the people out there as well. So... Um, before I, I, I really start, I also just want to honor those of you that come every Sunday week after week to pray. There is this growing group of, of prayer warriors in the mornings here that meet at nine. And if you want to join, please do. That's where the magic, that's where the spirit, that's where this meeting begins. 
It's at nine o'clock next to the coffee. And um, the sense that you get for what God wants to do is just breathtaking. And if you want to be more, um, what's the word, stirred by what God is doing here on a, on a Sunday morning, um, then please, we would love you to join us. Okay. So my name is Jen, and like Raj says, I've had the privilege of being part of this community since it began in 2008. And um, something that I'm really, really grateful for about this community is that when you are about to do something, these people are for you. And so when I'm about to preach, I can start feeling all these senses of like, I'm really not qualified to do this. Um, you know, the imposter syndrome, the enemy's lies that come for you. And just as the week progresses, the amount of encouragement and prophetic pictures and cheering on that comes from this community is beautiful. And if you have something on your heart, and if you see me doing this today and you think, oh, wow, I could actually do that. Like, that's the point, right? It's not to see someone up here and go, oh, I could never do that. The point is you look at me and go, oh, wow, if she can do this, <laughs> then I probably can too. And I just want to say from the front that as a culture, we are building a culture of people that will be cheered on in your pursuit of Jesus and what the calling is over your life. Amen. Okay, I do have a message. <laughs> um. So we are speaking on identity at the moment, and this has been profound. Has anybody else been impacted by what we're going after at the moment? It's so on God's heart. And um, it has been really beautiful just to think and to mull over the things that make us who we are. But I was preparing for this this morning, and I had this reminder of the first time I recognized in my children's lives that they realized they were born into a system or a world that wasn't really for them. And it was um, when Daniel, he was about five, he's my eldest, and we were at some of one of those like toy vending machines, you know, the thing with the claw, but like, and it pulls out your Bolex or whatever you're trying to get for five rand. And he'd never seen one of these machines before, and he just thought, oh my gosh, have you seen all those teddies? It's like only two rand bomb. And um, not that he knew the amount of anything at the time, but he, he had saved up some coins. He had about five coins, and he just wanted to like, spend them all now on these, these five teddies he was going to get. And I had to explain to him before he made this choice, actually, that's not how it works. Like, the only reason this machine can make money is because you probably won't get the teddy. And he was like, that obviously can't be true. And he's like, no, anyway. So he tried to get the teddy, obviously didn't work. He tried five times, and I saw the look on his face, which is that look that any parent that knows when the child is encountering the real world out there, they get that look. Oh, my gosh, the system is rigged. The system is rigged, and not is it just rigged. Like, it wasn't sadness he was experiencing. It was the experience that the system is rigged, and you all know about it. You know, it's like the system, this world is out to make me fail. And it was, a, it was um, like something I got to visually experience that I've experienced, right, as an adult, as I grow up. Oh, my gosh. Like the food that I've been eating is sprayed with pesticides. Like that's going to make me sick. That's going to disrupt my hormones. Like 
everyone's just okay with this so that your food can last longer or it can come from Asia to, to get to me. You know, that's just like a, a random example that came to my head now. But there are many ways in which we've encountered this system or this world, and it's not reliable. The point, I think, that I'm getting to is that when we clutch at the things out there to define our identity and to define what is good, we come up lacking. And so that is why this topic on identity has been crucial because we spend most of our, our lives out there and out receiving a lot of information, and not all of this information is true. A lot of it is rigged. <laughs> what is good? What is true? In Genesis 3, the devil comes in the form of a snake to tempt Eve, you remember, in the Garden of Eden. And she has that question, did God really say that I shouldn't eat from this tree of good and evil? You see, Eve saw good things in what Jesus said would kill her, ultimately. If it doesn't harm anybody, it must be good. If it's pleasurable, it must be good. If it makes me feel great, it must be good. But we discern as we get further into Christ that that's not how it works. Like, when my kids are shouting at me, shouting back at them, it can feel really good in that moment. <laughs> or if I'm... Um, experiencing a lot of pain in a relationship, then like scrolling on my phone for hours is a way nicer, much better feeling in that moment than actually going and having the hard conversation. So we can't then discern what is good and what is not good by how it makes us feel. So in my own quest to discover what is good and true about myself, um, I really did have a, a beautiful encounter with Jesus, and he really transformed how I saw my identity. But when it came to a, a crisis in my own mental health, in my own um, sense of identity, becoming a mother, it became a crisis of faith for me as well, because I realized a lot of the things I put my identity in were actually not in Jesus. They were actually in, <laughs> in myself. And... Um, I don't say this is a bad thing, but I did find myself trawling the self-help aisle of any bookshop I could find myself in looking for answers. It was like, there's a lot of other worst places I could have gone, right? So, I mean, it's not a bad thing. I found a lot of great, great truths and answers there. But the point is that self-help is still self. It's still looking back on oneself. And so I still came up empty. And what was amazing about that experience is that I feel like some of the things I did learn and that God did kindly direct me to in psychology or neuroscience or emotional health, um, I do feel like what it actually did was just elevate what I've been reading in my Bible all along. Like the scriptures, it's all there. It's all there. It's not like it's two differing points of view. They actually aligned so beautifully. And so today I would really like to just unpack that a little bit with us. Okay, that's my introduction. We're moving on. Um, what I'm speaking about today, I'm so excited about. I think it's the most beautiful truth. We've been speaking about um, who we are in Christ. So I am an image bearer. I am chosen. I am a saint. And today we are speaking about I am known. I am known. So if you want to turn to your Bible in Psalm... 139 verse 1 to 6. If you have your Bible, if you have your phone, or if you want to just listen to me and 
close your eyes and hear the scripture read over you, that's also fine. It says, Psalm 139, verse 1 to 6, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. (laughs) You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. What a comforting scripture. He knows our every thought. He is familiar with all my ways. Every thought. Every thought. And he loves us. You see, the truth is we can speak until we blew in the face that Jesus loves us. But if we don't feel that he knows us, how do we accept that he actually loves us? It's not about facts. I'm married to Luke, this amazing man over there, and he knows many facts about me. But the fact that he knows how old I am or that I have brown hair or that I'm shocking in the mornings... Um, or that I like like a drop of milk in my coffee, or these kinds of things. That's not the kind of thing that, okay, the coffee is. But the other things, they don't make me feel loved necessarily, right? Those are just facts about me. You could, I could tell all of you that right now, and now you know that about me. It's the intimacy with which the Father knows us that draws us to himself. It's the intimacy that then that I am known that then reveals that we are loved. So in the scripture, there's the Hebrew word for new, it's yada, and it's the same word. It says here that um, he knows us, and in the, script, in the scripture where, where um, in Genesis it says Adam knew Eve, it's the same word that is used. It's that intimacy that he knows us. He knows us, he knows you. He is an intimate father that truly knows us from before we were born, from before we were conceived, and before the world was even made. It's Ephesians 1, verse 4 to 6. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. The prophet Jeremiah says that he knew us before we um, were conceived. So Ephesians 1 is the text that we've been basing ourselves in for this series because it so beautifully covers all these elements of how God knows us and how we're discovering our identity. But Paul writes in verse 17, I keep asking that you may know him better, but every other verse in in Ephesians 1, which I'm not going to read today, but we've been going through numerous times, Um, Every other scripture is about discovering ourselves as God knows us. So verse 17 is how do we know God? Everything else is how how does God know us? It's something to, to think about. You know, there's such a pursuit of God, which is beautiful. But the gift is that he already knows you. And so we can spend our lives then knowing more about our own identity and knowing more about ourselves. That is the journey that we take, right? It's not instant. 
I'm still discovering who I am. Formerly you did not know God, but now you know God, or, or rather are known by God. That is Galatians 4, verse 8 to 9. What it is saying to us is there's something even more foundational than knowing God. It is that he knows us. That's point one. I think I've got four. Kurt Thompson, a psychiatrist that I really admire, um, he speaks a lot about being known, and it's been uh, his, I suppose, work has been incredibly comforting to me in some of my darker places. But he writes, in a world in which we experience such deep desire and such deep grief, we find coursing through all of it our unquenchable longing to be known. How true of the culture we live in. It is obsessed with being known. Like, it's insane. The celebrity culture that we live in at the moment, it's, I mean, there's never been anything like it. I know every generation says it's never been like this. This is unprecedented. But this truly is. Even um, just in our own little mundane, ordinary lives, we have this sense of, like, what are we leaving behind? Um, what memory books have I made for my child? What, um, how will I be known or remembered? What is the legacy I'm leaving? And I'm not saying this is all bad. Like God asks us to leave a legacy for the next generation. But what is our motivation? Is that we want to be known. The thing is that it's all um, fake, right? Just because you're known out there does not mean you're known in here. And so we have to look at how do we... Um, how do we truly be witnessed? How are we truly known? Knowing who we are is important, but knowing whose we are is so much more. I just, I, I think of how babies are born, and Nkosi Nati spoke about this so beautifully last week. But it's like we all come into this world looking for someone, looking for us, you know? We come into this world looking for someone who's looking for us. We do not thrive otherwise. We do not live otherwise. So the, the four, um, Kurt Thompson says, the four main things that we look for is to be seen, to be soothed, to be safe, and to be secure. That is how we attach. That is the basis of attachment theory, is how we attach to our first caregiver how are we seen, safe, secure, and soothed? And obviously we're born into a world that is less than perfect. And many of us sitting in this room were born into a less than perfect situation or a less than perfect childhood. Or we've experienced trauma in some way. And so the attachment that we found to our caregiver often dictates or depicts the way we then attach or identify with other people relationally from then on out, right? And that is a truth and that is a hard truth and I'm not negating the fact that it takes work to sometimes undo some of that. And that it's actually um, something that we have to pursue and we have to go after. Emotional health is important. But what I am saying, and this is the really, really good news, is that that is only part of the story that we live in. That is only part of the story that we live in. As Christians, as people loved by Jesus, we live in a much fuller story. And the fuller story is that we serve a God that is always coming for us. Don't be scared of my tears. I'm never sad. I'm, you actually want these because then you know that it's actually the Lord is doing something with me. 
oh, it's so beautiful. That's why it makes me cry. It's so beautiful that it doesn't matter that we live in a very broken system, in a very incomplete world, in situations that are far from ideal, and yet we serve a God that is always coming for us and has known us since before we were even born. It's so beautiful. I want to read this to you. It's a little bit long, but stay with me for 30 seconds. It's by Brian Rosner, and he just says it so eloquently, what a secure attachment to God looks like. I just want to read this to you quickly. Children develop a secure and positive sense of self when their parents form a secure attachment to them. Early security fosters a stable self and a narrative about oneself. Involved, loving parents know their children intimately. Indeed, a, child, a child's well-being appears to initially depend less on knowing his or her parents than on being known by them. Attachment bonds are vital in both directions, but the caregiver is critical. Similar to the human parent-child relationships, an attachment to God is where it is founded in a lived experience of being known and being loved. It leads to a healthy sense of significance and is an effective source of comfort in response to dispiriting difficulties. Being known by God offers the mental benefits that foster forgiveness and self-reflection that are associated with a secure state of mind. Amen. That is on offer for each one of us. This is such, such good news, guys. God is the ultimate restorer, and nobody's story or birth or childhood is the full story. We are deeply known by him, seen, secure, soothed, and safe. Being known looks like something, right? How are you guys doing? Are you good? Okay. That was point two. How does this translate to the scriptures? I've had to really rein myself in here because when you start looking through the scriptures, there are just so many beautiful stories of God encountering individuals in order to give them a sense of identity and a sense that they are known. I mean, even just in the Gospel of John, I think I read through seven different encounters where Jesus is just encountering people in completely different, unique ways to them. Um, like uh, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman at the well and Peter. And if you would like to just witness a little bit of what God's heart for you is, that's a good place to find yourself. Just spend a lot of time in the Gospel of John. It's so beautiful. But when I was preparing for today, I was struck by the story that I've read so many times, and yet God in his scripture, because it is alive and breathing... Um, I just, I saw something that I haven't seen before. So I wanted to read to you from John 20, verse 11 to 18. It's where Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. I'll read it for you. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? 
They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. (laughs) I love Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Hello. Mary and Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I've always loved the scripture because I don't think it's for nothing that Jesus' first appearance after the resurrection is to a woman. And that is not because we are better than men. It's because God and Jesus was always breaking, you know, like tearing the ceiling off of things, was always saying, oh, you've just put this person into a box because of their identity, because of their possessions or their wealth or their marital status or their gender or tax collecting or prostitutes or, you know, those kinds of things. And here even... At his resurrection, he chooses this opportunity to speak to us again. There were other disciples there. He, he revealed himself to Mary. But the scene is so tender. Mary's grief is the main focus of this entire passage. They mention her tears four times. The angels, the narrator, narrator, <laughs> anyway, um, Jesus himself. It's such a a tender, tender God that we serve. What I love about this is that I think I see Jesus appearing to Mary in her sorrow and despair. And because of her sorrow and despair, she doesn't even recognize him. And I recognize that in myself. It's not saying life isn't hard. It's not saying that sometimes we have what we call the dark night of the soul, where we just do not feel him close to us. It takes a ridiculous amount of faith to believe that he is still standing right where he said he would be. I have experienced that in my own life. I know many of the people in this room have too. It's where faith really means something. But sometimes... Our sorrow and our despair and our anguish and our pain make it unrecognizable even when he is right there. We have to be paying attention because he is always doing something. He is always doing something. And I love this because she doesn't see him. She thinks he's the gardener. She's distraught. And then he says her name. He says, Mary. 
And when she hears him say her name, she knows who it is. We have to know his voice. We have to know his voice, guys. How do we know his voice? We have to look at our lives. We have to look at our lives. I'll explain that later. I'm getting off track. I just need some water, so I'll just... He is so good. <laughs> Mary. And she turns around and she sees, she knows, she knows it's him. Mm. Okay. I don't even know where I am in my notes. It doesn't matter. Sometimes our pain stops us from recognizing the voice of the one who knows us. Whatever the cause of her blindness, the single word Mary, spoken as Jesus had always uttered it, was enough to remove it. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. John 10, verse 3 and 4. Anguish and despair are instantly swallowed up by astonishment and delight. Amen. When I was um, thinking about how I could you know, give you guys an example from my own life, I kept wanting to share some really grand, amazing experience where God just came in and I was known. <laughs> and it's not that I haven't had those moments. I remember particularly being in a car accident where I just felt like he's got me. And I've got these, I've, I've known Jesus since I was 12, so it's a long time. I've got these significant moments that I can look back on, you know, but I just felt like actually what he wanted me to say to you guys today, and this is my fourth point and, and last point, is that I've actually felt him saying, tell them, about, tell them about the marble jar. And I was like, I wonder if I've told them, told them about the marble jar before, because I actually really didn't want to have to mention Brene Brown in this talk. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever preached and not brought her up, and I almost got through it today, Lord. <laughs> But Brene, the shame researcher, she's done a lot of research on some things, and who am I to, um, to take that away from her? So we're going we're gonna to go to the marble jar. The marble jar, for those of you that don't know, is a concept that she explained in one of her books when her daughter came home from school and was absolutely distraught because she'd told something to a friend, and this friend had told the whole class, and the whole class is sort of laughing, and it had just been this big thing, and her daughter, I think, was in grade three at the time. And so she had to explain this concept of a marble jar to her daughter as a way to explain how we build trust. So how we build trust is that when somebody that's your friend or somebody you know does something for you that's worthy of trust, you put a little marble in the jar and it might be they kept you a place at the lunch table at break. It might be that they um, invited you to a play date. It might be that they remembered what your mom's name was. Things, about, things that they've done that show you that they know who you are. And um, I was thinking about that marble jar in terms of this concept and I was thinking about what are the things in my life, the people in my life that I really trust? Like how, how did I build that marble jar of trust? 
And I was thinking about some beautiful examples literally in like the last few weeks where things have happened to me where I've felt like I can trust someone. And it's, it's so interesting when you start to think about it because something that came up in my memories was it was this childhood friend of mine that showed up at my grand's funeral, you know? She, was just, she just knew me. She was there. And um, it's maybe somebody knowing, like, how much milk you take in your coffee. You just feel a little bit known by them. And so when I, think, I thought about this concept of trust and how trust is built, not by a grand gesture, but by small little moments, I thought that is what it is to be known. My entire life is a love story of God knowing me by building these little moments into my life where I've just discovered some really bad news and I walk into a coffee shop and Julie is sitting right there and she's just there to embrace me in that moment. God uses people. We're just not known by him and not known amongst each other, right? The way we come into this world needing to attach I mean, it would be easier if we could just be known by God. <laughs> It'd be nice if we were just seen, soothed, safe, secure with the Lord. But he puts us in community. He puts us in spaces where we cannot just be known in some vertical relationship. We have to be known by one another. And so I think my point with the marble jar is that when we look at our lives and we pay attention We will see God's hand. We will see how we have been known from the moment we were born up until right now today. And if you're battling to see it, that's okay. If you are Mary in the garden and you're just in a lot of pain and anguish, or if you're just feeling really unknown, that's okay. This message is for you. We have all been there where we have felt misunderstood and unknown and like, What is the point, right? What is the point? And I just feel like the Lord is, is so kind at coming after us time and time again. I want to end by just reading this beautiful quote from J.I. Packer. It says, What matters supremely not in the, not, the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is not a moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Mm, let's stand together. I'd love us to, to have time to respond to God's word today. We don't have this time at the end of our meetings Uh, because we want to like have this nice, smooth, soft, creamy feeling before we get back into that world out there. <laughs> we
We do it because when we hear God's word spoken, we get to respond, and life is busy. And if there's something that speaks to your heart today, not from what I've said, but because his spirit is actually moving, what I have to say is just more noise in your world, <laughs> unless the spirit wants to do something. But the world is busy, and so if we can take 15 10, 15 minutes to respond to what he's doing in each of our hearts, then we need to do that. So we're going to sing one more song together, and we're going to open up the front here to any prophetic words that anybody might have for someone in this room. A prophetic word is, is literally just when someone feels they hear something from God that he wants to do for somebody else. And it might be a group of people. And I've had a few senses myself. So maybe before we start singing even, I, um, yeah. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what I feel like the Lord wants to do today. And then we're going to invite some other people as well. I just had this sense. We can close our eyes. Let's just pray. Let's just pray. Jesus, we thank you that there is not one space in our hearts that you cannot own and fill and transform. There is no place that you hold back your affection, your restoration, and your salvation. We want to release this morning wholeness and health, security, safety, We want to release strategy today, not a strategy for some grand plan, but a strategy for life and life to the full. And I want to pray today for those where your experience up to this point has been one of mostly been mis being misunderstood. And I want to say the Lord has an appointment with you today because you are known. You are known here on earth. You are known in the heavens. If you are known before you were even created. Let him come and let him minister to those places in you where you feel like he does not know what he is doing. 